Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. It is Thursday, July 13th. All right, here we go. The nuclear button has been pushed. The car has driven off the cliff. Whatever your preferred emergency metaphor SAG-AFTRA, the union of about 160,000 actors and performers, announced today that it's on strike. They're joining the writers in the first dual strike in Hollywood since 1960. For some perspective, Ronald Reagan was president of SAG back then. The actors and studios couldn't agree on a new three-year deal, despite a last-minute mediator and intervention from the heads of the studios and the major agencies. So as of tomorrow morning, all scripted film and television production is shut down unless the Guild gives you a waiver, which it said it will do for truly independent productions. Actors won't promote their work, so bye-bye to all those Comic-Con panels, the starry red carpets, the Venice and Toronto film festivals, even social media posts of trailers and whatnot. It's a pretty catastrophic moment for Hollywood, which, as listeners to the show will know, is suffering through some pretty catastrophic changes lately across the board. Quote, this is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption, Bob Iger said. He's the CEO of Disney. He continued, there's a level of expectation that the actors have that is just not realistic. And they're adding to the set of challenges that this business is already facing. The actors obviously disagree, and the writers as well, for reasons we've talked about. At a press conference today, Fran Drescher, the SAG-AFTRA president, gave a pretty wild speech. She said of the studio's final offer, quote, there was nothing there. It was insulting. I'm not going to do a nanny voice there. The actors fear, of course, that the Netflix revolution in streaming has left them behind financially and that the lack of transparency and consumption data and AI advances are existential threats to their professions. So what's next? It's a bad situation all around, and it raises so many questions, some of which we're going to try to answer today in this quasi-emergency pod. I've got Jonathan Handel here. He writes about labor, and he writes about the strike for Puck, where I work, and he contributes to my newsletter, What I'm Hearing, which you should be subscribed to. Go to the link in the episode description. Jonathan's also an attorney, and he focuses on Hollywood labor issues. He wrote a book about the last strike, and he's been following the current standoff really closely. He went to the press conference today. So today we're going to break it all down with Jonathan Handel, what strike means, what it doesn't mean, how we got here, and what the next steps will look like. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Jonathan Handel, who is back from the fiery press conference that SAG-AFTRA gave this afternoon and has some thoughts. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Matt. So 
you were there. You've covered a lot of, of these labor impasse press conferences. Fran Drescher, man, she brought it. Let's listen to a little first. Jesse, will you play a little clip? I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity. That is not your typical speech that you hear at these things. She's really going for it. The room was electric, was absolutely electric. I mean, you know, she had one applause line after another, and the press had to restrain itself to not join the actors in applauding <laughs> the leader. <laughs> the press, most of whom are in unions themselves these days. That's a, that's a separate issue. But, you know, the impact of that, though, I mean, that's what I've always said about the difference between an actor's strike and a writer's strike is the actors are actors. They have the ability to communicate to the public. The public knows who they are. They have the celebrity factor. I mean, if Tom Cruise doesn't drop out of a moving train to a picket line, like, what are we even doing? Like, they, <laughs> Will Smith can be out there, you know, rapping and doing his shtick on the picket line and people will pay attention. These are stars. And that is just something the writers don't have. So the actors have the ability to galvanize public opinion. The question is, does any of that matter? And I don't know if it does, but they definitely have the ability to get attention. Well, it, it matters indirectly. It doesn't matter in terms of, oh, gee, are the studios going to be shamed into doing a deal? That's highly right. unlikely. But where the way it matters is that that public attention and that public support further provides feed, further feedback to the to the actors and also the writers. Right. On the, it on riles them up. Line. We've talked about this on the show with the writers. They're all out there on social media and, you know, screaming at each other, not to galvanize public opinion, but to galvanize and strengthen their own cause, their their membership. Because, you know, and that's important because remember, of course, you know, most of the actors, the non-high pros are, you know, are working class and middle class actors who are, you know, sometimes are struggling to put food on the table or pay the rent. And there's a lot of them. There's, there's 160,000 of them. That's right. The, the union is 15 times larger than the Writers Guild, which means that, you know, they have the ability essentially to flood the zone. I mean, the, the number of people on the picket lines, just the sheer mass headed up by some of the stars that, that will be very recognizable. It, it's going to be a very different dynamic. All right. So let's get into this because you've done a lot of reporting on this and you're going to have a piece in Puck tonight in the What I'm Hearing newsletter that will go into more detail. But give us the gist of where this broke down. What did the actors want and what were the studios willing to give? Well, five major issues. First one, increases in basic wages in scale. The actors were asking for 15% initially, which sounds high, except that we had seven and six and a half percent inflation in the last two years. They wanted a catch-up payment. They're, they were down to 11%, but the studios are only offering 5%. Secondly, residuals. The actors want a success-based residual for streaming shows that are successful that would add on to the existing residual that's indifferent as to whether a show is successful or not. Well, and with that comes the transparency issue, because to have a success metric, you have to provide some data. Well, the actors thought they had a way around it, which is that they would use data from Parrot Analytics. 
Uh, but that's not even viewership data. Par- I mean, I like no. Parrot Analytics, but they have a formula that assesses, quote, demand for shows. And that includes social media activity. It includes, you know, things that are not necessarily eyeballs watching shows. Well, that's absolutely right. But it's a proxy for how successful or popular a show is. And if the studios aren't going to give data, uh, they, I mean, the Guild would be perfectly happy to use data from the studios and streamers, except they won't give it. And the streamers crap on data from companies like Parrot because they say, oh, it's not 100% accurate. Or we have our own proprietary stuff. So if they were to sign on and say, okay, we will use this particular metric, it's an endorsement that then would undermine their own claims that they have their own data. That's right. So, you know, we don't like Parrot's data, but you can't have ours either. Right. It's a, it's, it's a position <laughs> the streamers are taking. And, yeah. you know, what is the union going to do? Just roll over on that? Next thing, AI. We don't know exactly what the studios proposed. The, the actors, I think, are looking for compensation when their performances are used for training. They're looking for compensation if they are replicated uh, using AI-type technology. You know, you could see a split the difference, right? Instead of hiring me for four days, hire me for half a day and generate a performance, but pay me for two and a half days. So, you know, one would assume, unlike with the writers, where the writers you know, don't want AI on behalf of the studios generating scripts, the actors may have a, a channel to a solution, but the studios... Meaning they were okay it. with it if they got paid. That's, you know, there's a minority, what I think is a minority position, which is that even if I get paid, I'm not okay with it. I, I mm-hmm. want my image to be my image, not a computer-generated one. But the I think the position the union was taking was, yeah, I'm okay if I get paid. There was an interesting quote from Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who's the lead negotiator for SAG. And he said, this is his quote, they propose that our background actors should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should, meaning the studio, should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. Well, what the hell is that? (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, that's from Duncan Crabtree Island, the the negotiator. And, And that doesn't seem fair. No, if that if that is an an accurate rendition of the studio's position, and and you know we have we have to always remember because this is very emotional that you know uh, to to check with the other side because the other side in each case will say well that's not really exactly what we said and more details will come out. But if sure. if that's the position, you know, great background actors get paid one hundred you know thirty five dollars a day, so one hundred thirty five dollars never pay me again. You can use my image and my rendition in perpetuity. I mean, no. That's yeah, just, it means that it would mean a lot of background scenes would feature the same people year after year after year because they would have them, they would have it for free and they could just use the same ones and reanimate them with AI. Why would anyone agree to that? Yeah. You so, know? all right. And so so go go on your list. Keep going. Yeah, so then then we have pension and health. And I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but basically there's certain parameters that relate to the pension and health funding that the studios pay. And those those particular parameters have not been increased in 43 years since the last actor strike in 1980. The union wants an inflation-based increase. The studios are, are offering a $5,000, much lower uh, increase, and they're just not meeting in the middle on that. So it's a question of, of making sure that the health plan and the pension plan are not starved for resources. Was this ever going to settle? Was there ever a chance that this was going to come to a resolution? Or was this always headed for an actor strike? Because I had a theory that the studios would be incentivized 
to make a deal with the actors, just like they were incentivized with the directors, because that would then push the writers into a corner and it would allow them to extract a better deal from the writers. But that requires getting SAG to go along. And it doesn't sound like they were ever very close. No, I mean, the, and the final issue was virtual auditions, which I wrote about back mm. in the fall of last year. And the union wants guardrails. The studio is offering guardrails with no enforcement, with no teeth. My sources at the union, both sides of the, the aisle and the, the two political factions have been talking strike for, uh, I don't know, eight, nine months or more. And as we've been reporting in Puck, and it just is an existential moment because, you know, let's let's look at the studio position for a minute. You know, three three poles. Uh, to their business. Theatrical box office is down 25% or more from pre-COVID still. Linear television, broadcast, and cable are dying on the vine, and the audiences are shrinking and they're aging out of the demographic, well out of the demographic in some cases that advertisers want. And then streaming, to compete effectively with Netflix, you have to do what Netflix did, build a worldwide television channel, scripted television channel. But Netflix did it with easy money. Because first of all, it was an era of easy money. They were first mover. And secondly, they were treated as a tech company. But now what investors want, what Wall Street wants, is not growth. They want profits. And it's hard to have profits at the same time that you're investing and building a platform. But isn't that the studio position? The studio position is it's a terrible time to strike. Nobody's making any money. So why would we agree to demands that raise our costs at a time that everyone needs us to be reducing costs to make this entire business function so that we can invest and have a business in the future. And the union has two answers to that. One is everything we ask for, the studios could afford. These are not gigantic asks. And the second, and, and remember, you know, labor costs, I mean, uh, below the line labor as opposed to the stars and stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a huge, it's not the ginormous percentage of the, of the costs here. But the it's studios, not the 20 million that Tom Cruise gets, because don't forget, We're talking minimums. The guilds negotiate the minimums. The agents and the other representatives negotiate above minimums. So we're not talking about the stars that can write their own ticket or even the stars that have a modicum of leverage. We're talking about the basic agreement that applies to Joe Schmo actor who's on whatever show and wants to earn a living. That's exactly right. Now, the studios uh, are, although they didn't articulate this, are very mindful of the fact that next year we have three contracts that are expiring. The Screen Actors Guild contract for soap operas and game shows and reality. Who really cares? I mean, it's a small, much Oh, how contract. dare you? I care very much about game shows and reality. Well, but in terms of the economic impact. Yes. Okay. But the other two contracts are much more consequential economically. IOTSE, the crew union, their contract is expiring and the Teamsters who can shut down a production with a strike, shut down the industry, their contract is expiring. And so the studios, the IA is already concerned about AI, and both of them are going to be concerned about basic wage increases. And so the studios are afraid that if they give in uh, too much today, what what does tomorrow look like? The other answer the writers have, though, to the studio's cry of poverty is this. If you're going to build a multi-billion dollar, 100 million subscriber worldwide platform, based on our labor, we need sustainable careers, we need a fair piece of the action, and we need not to be displaced by AI or other technology. Well, that's been the argument all along, is that Netflix came in, disrupted the model that had been working pretty well for everybody for decades, and changed it with the consent of the creative community, by the way, who was very happy to take their quotes plus 20% 
to work on a show. And they changed the model for the entire industry. Everybody decided that, oh, we don't need to be paid down the line. We can work with this without the residuals. Without, no, not without the residuals. With, residuals. with fewer residuals. Mm, residuals are paid every year in streaming. Uh, they but, are, but they're but, not the same as they are for the old model of broadcast and cable television. They're different. They are a different formula, but they can they can be significant for for writers and directors, depending. But uh, for actors, less so, which is sort of almost always the way. And again, no success metric. I mean, right. the other residuals had success metrics, you know, like a percentage of the license fee. Successful show has a higher license fee. The residuals are higher. Yeah, like I was talking to a lawyer today who's, who represents a producer who had a hit 15 years ago. He said he just got a check in the mail for a million dollars. Not a residual, by the way. Not, not a residual. A participation. Participation. And that is also what has gone away from these streaming shows. It's a separate That's issue, right. but it is related. And my point is, Netflix changed the model, and now the model has led to this. And if you want to call this the Netflix strike, great. Uh, you know, it is a it is a backlash against the streaming economy for sure. That's right. And, you know, the irony here is that they changed the model, dragged the industry into a new world. And then the door slammed shut and locked behind everyone, including Netflix. When Netflix had a glitch in its subscriber growth in March of, uh, of last year, suddenly Wall Street turned on them and everyone else and said, you know, growth? We're not so interested in growth. Yeah, we want they're profits. back. Netflix is back. It's but just Netflix everybody else that's not. Everyone else is not. You know, and Netflix <laughs> doesn't have a fall scripted season that's going to get destroyed the way right. the three major networks and their corporate parents are. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So how much do you think that the studio's unwillingness to make a deal here is based in part or all because these studios are not on the same page? They have different businesses. They have different priorities. I'm sure you've heard the same stuff I heard where it's like, oh, you know, six of the eight were on board with making a deal, but two held out because there's no way they're going to give in on AI. There's no way they're going to give in on transparency and that the division on the studio side is what's to blame for the inability to make a deal? Well, I I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that the MPTP operates uh, based on consensus. And it is very hard to put a consensus together when the companies have disparate interests the way they do now, much more so than 15 years ago. So that is that is probably a uh, a factor here. And there isn't a uh, you know, a strong CEO hand uh, weighing in. I mean, the the labor VPs who are very dedicated people, and I don't want to 
disparage them, but they primarily, you know, they, they can negotiate some issues, but they, but at, when rubber hits the road and it's a h- tough call, they mostly have the power to say no. It's the CEOs and the higher level executives who have the power to say yes. And they have not, did not get involved in, uh, in this negotiation. It was the CEOs and the others. Well, you mean not the CEOs. You mean it was, it was not the labor VPs. It was the labor VPs. Yeah. And then um, the last minute they start making calls. And, you know, initially it was reported that Bob Iger was involved. Then we heard he wasn't involved, that he delegated to Dana Walden and some of the others that were more junior at Disney. And it seems like everything was lined up for this to fail because yep. you had the fiery union, you had the kind of chaos in the business. And you had these other these other divisions amongst the studio membership that it's going to be difficult to come to a resolution. So that's where we are right now. Let's talk about where we are going, because in many ways, this is uncharted territory. We haven't had a dual strike in 63 years, certainly not during the modern entertainment industry where there's a lot going on in film, television, other things. Uh, What do you see the next couple of weeks looking like? Well, the next couple of weeks in some ways are the easiest because that's where the initial burst of enthusiasm is. And uh, starting tomorrow, uh, uh, tomorrow morning at nine, they, uh, the leadership of uh, SAG-AFTRA and some high profile actors and so forth are going to be making a tour of, uh, of the uh, several sites. They're going to start with, the, with the Netflix. They're going to move on to uh, Paramount, Warners and Disney is what we're, uh, is what we're told. They haven't listed the names. They haven't said, you know, we got Meryl Streep coming. Uh, I don't know the names, no. <laughs> that, but I can that, predict. I guarantee you Jane Fonda will be there. She tends to show up at these things. I'm sure there will be some big names that will get some attention. But you're right. This is the, the first week we can say they will stop promoting. There's not going to be any red carpets. There's not going to be anybody posting their trailer for their movie. There's not going to be um, any of the stars at Comic-Con that you might see. What happens down the road? There's been there was a very controversial article that was posted on a trade site called Deadline, where there were blind quotes attributed to an executive that made it seem like this was someone in power, although I seriously doubt that because I think the AMPTP leadership is smarter than to put it out there. They're going to they're going to starve people. But it basically suggested that the strategy was to let the writers die on the vine and start losing their homes and that they weren't going to negotiate seriously until late in the fall. I I just don't believe that. I don't think that with these very, very famous actors out there picketing, I just think that the AMPTP is going to come back to the table pretty quickly. Do you agree with that or do you not? I agree with your skepticism of the article, but I don't think they're going to come back pretty quickly. There's a, there was a lot of bitterness. When I, I spoke with sources uh, close to each side last night, late last night, two in the morning or something, and there was a lot of bitterness in the room today, that, that last day of negotiations. Carol Lombardini, the head of the president of the AMPTP, said something along the lines of that we can't really resume talks while you're on strike because that's not what civilized people do. Now, that's a rough quote. What is she talking about? That's exactly how strikes end. Well, that was pointed out. <laughs> I mean, so it just goes on forever? It's got to end at some point. Of course. And the strikes are a legal and moral right of, uh, of labor. And, right. You know, that's and, silly. 
it, it just, you know, and uh, the, my management side source, uh, it, you know, and she then walked it back. Uh, my management side source said, well, she was misinterpreted and, you know, exactly what she said, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's silly. But I do think that at some point they've got to put aside this bitterness and say, like, we've got to come to some resolution. And that should probably happen. My guess has always been mid-September. People will let this linger through July and August and then go after Labor Day. They'll come back and they'll say, OK, now let's make a deal. Do you agree with that or no? It certainly won't be, in my view, before mid-September, whether whether mid-September will be the, the timing. Remember, 15 years ago, we had external factors that drove the solution to the Writers Guild strike. And, and one of those factors was the looming Oscars. But there's nothing going to be looming in September. The, the Emmys have, uh, you know, reportedly, if they don't, uh, they have a drop dead kind of a date sometime in July where they have to make a go, no go decision in terms of September versus November versus more likely actually January because of the presence of football during the fall. So the Emmys won't be there to drive a solution, even if they could. So, you know, why mid-September? Why not early October? Well, there's I, other I factors. Know. There's other factors. I mean, these companies will start to hurt at some point. Yes. They will start to, you know, lose money because the fall season is only reality and advertisers like to pay more to advertise against scripted content. The late night shows are going to be dark in the fall and that's money that they lost. SNL, all of these other shows that depend on these strikes ending. And even the streamers will start to run out of content at some point. I mean, I think right, right now they seem to be the best positioned and they have the global pipeline and they've been stockpiling. And frankly, there's so much content out there and in an in a on-demand environment, people are not going to feel the strike as quickly as they might have 15 years ago. But at some point they will feel it. People want to watch Stranger Things, and there's no new season of Stranger Things coming at this point until this ends. No, you're right. I mean, they want to watch Stranger Things, not the same old things. And <laughs> Trademark that. All right. So is this going to fundamentally change Hollywood? I mean, we're gonna, we will have you back and we'll have a longer conversation about this question. But is this as big a deal as it seems to me? Are we going to see fundamental changes that come out of this strike? It's going to accelerate the changes that we're already seeing, uh, in particular the decline of uh, of television, linear television. I mean, like suppose you you, know, you have a reality show in September because you you don't have a scripted show, and you know five reality shows and one of them becomes a hit, two of them become hits. Well, no one's going to cancel those. Those are those are time slots that are now lost to scripted, you know, for the time being at least. Yeah, I know. It's it's also just a from a cost perspective these conglomerates, these studio conglomerates in the short term, I've said this before, they're loving the fact that some of these costs are coming off their books. You know, they're, they're loving the opportunity to trim and to scrap shows that maybe they're not as high on now as they were six months ago when they said yes. And there could be ramifications down the line where the entire ecosystem of content shrinks because of this work stoppage. That is definitely a possibility. And the, the ecosystem actually hasn't grown as, as much as people think it has. We we talked about this. Well, the number the of shows Reporter. has, but the number of episodes has not. I mean, that's a larger right. issue. That's sort of the reason why they're striking. That's right. That's right. The volume of content is not greater, but the number of different shows is, and people are looking for something fresh, you know, here, there, and everywhere. All right. So, Jonathan, we will have you back. I appreciate the time. This is only beginning, um, and you'll have more on this in your in the puck, what I'm hearing newsletter tonight. 
All right, we're back with the call sheet. We got producer Jesse in for Craig, who is still off on his honeymoon, somewhere tropical, probably learning how to water ski while listening to ABBA. Jesse, did you check out the Emmy nominations yesterday? I did. I was surprised by some of them, but... Uh, you're not a big uh, Welcome to Chippendales fan? No, I like... Uh, Emmy nominated Camille. Welcome to Chippendales? That sounds pretty good. I mean, I, I think Chippendales <laughs> would absolutely love that. Emmy nominated Obi-Wan Kenobi? That was the big shocker to me. Yes. I can't believe that got a limited series nomination. I, I That was not good. Andor was great. Yes. Andor is great. Obi-Wan Kenobi, not great. Mm, no. Like, the highlight of that was just seeing Darth Vader in it, really. Yeah, Darth Vader kicking ass is pretty fun to watch. So the takeaways, pretty much, HBO killed it. Had the three top-nominated shows with Succession, White Lotus, and Last of Us. Most nominated platform with 127 nominations, a trounced Netflix. My takeaway was, like, the water cooler shows are the ones that now get nominated. Seems kind of obvious, but it used to be that the Emmys would have kind of particular taste. It was an older crowd. The Academy was kind of going for the PBS type stuff, the Downton Abbeys of the world. Nowadays, if you can get people to talk about your show and get big ratings, you got a chance to get some Emmys. I mean, you look at these things like Wednesday. Wednesday was a big one for me that I I thought exactly that. Yeah, like Beef. Another limited series that got nominated. And then obviously, like Ted Lasso is a big hit for Apple and Abbott Elementary is on there. And, you know, there's a lot of the usuals, but uh, the ones that got in there knew my prediction today. I don't I'm not in the business of prognosticating for awards. I, I typically don't do that until it's later in the game. Mm-hmm. But this the the comedy series race is the most interesting one for me this year, because I think it's pretty obvious that Succession is going to win the drama series race. And honestly, the limited series category is so bizarre. It's got Beef, Dahmer, Daisy Jones and the Six, Fleischman is in trouble, and Obi-Wan Kenobi. I don't even know how to make a prediction there. But in the comedy series category, I think there's going to be a new winner this year. I think the bear is going to pull out a victory over Ted Lasso this year. Abbott Elementary won last year for its first season. The year before that, Ted Lasso won for its first season. And uh, this year, I think The Bear will win for its first season. It's like one of my favorite shows. And usually my favorite shows don't win the Emmy. But I think in this case, this one, the, the buzz around The Bear this year I think is going to turn into a comedy series Emmy and will beat out Abbott Elementary, Barry, Jury Duty, which I loved. I'm happy to see that that one got in there. I I will attribute that to Ronald and the director coming on the noted podcast, The Town. Uh, I'm joking. (laughs) Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso and Wednesday are the other nominees. But I think the bear has it. I think that that hits all the notes. The people in the creative community love it because it's sort of about creative exceptionalism. It's got great emotion, great stakes, great music. So this is going to be the year. You watch the bear, you laugh, you cry, you're invested in it, especially the second season. They had a good breakdown episode by episode on The Watch. If you're interested in that, The Watch podcast guys do a great job of that stuff. All right. So that is my prediction. You can hold me to it. Uh, That is the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Jonathan Handel. I want to thank producer editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.